come now this Lord's Day to consider the subject of the wonder of the Incarnation. We've touched upon that just briefly in the last several sermons regarding the miracle of salvation and how salvation belongs unto the Lord. No less is this miracle seen than in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus in the world about two millennia ago. Because Jonah teaches us that salvation belongs to the Lord. And the crucial fact is this, the Holy Ghost must take away our unbelief if we're to believe gospel truth and be saved. We must be granted faith by the power of the Holy Ghost's work of conversion in our hearts. Only then by faith can we lay hold of the gospel. For without regeneration, the natural man is at enmity with God. Without that Holy Ghost work in us, no one can obey or follow or believe or call upon God for mercy. Paul specifically describes the limits of what natural sinful men can do or know. The only way men can know the things that God has given to us is by the work of the Holy Ghost in that man's heart. That is, in fact, the reason that God imparts His Spirit to our hearts in the first place, so that we can know and believe the things of God that we otherwise could never know and believe. The natural man without the work of the Spirit does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. He might hear them and be able to repeat them and even understand them, but he cannot and will not believe on them, nor trust in them at all. Instead, Paul says they are foolishness and a stumbling block to the man without the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul sharpens his point. Nobody can declare that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Ghost. This is highly significant since one must confess Jesus as Lord before one can be saved. Jesus taught in His own ministry that it takes a special selective work by God upon a sinner before that sinner can trust in Christ unto salvation. Everyone whom God first gives to Christ will surely come to Christ, and nobody can come to Christ unless the Father draws that man to Christ. It takes a special teaching of that man by God to draw him to Christ. Christ taught us that it is the Spirit that makes sinners alive, not sacraments. Finally, no one can come to Christ unless coming to Christ is given to that poor man by the Father. In Ephesians 2, Paul makes it clear that we are all dead in our sins unless the Spirit quickens us and causes us to trust in Christ. That quickening and believing are described by Paul as the gift of God to us. That gift of faith is given to us by God by the powerful working of the Holy Ghost in each of the Lord's people. And without that Spirit work, no one can believe and be saved. We dare not miss the mighty power of God to save us. Far more powerful than the miracle of the great fish that rescued Jonah from the sea. Salvation requires a miraculous power in the hearts and minds of sinners to believe God's promises and call upon Him for mercy. We must give joyful thanks always for the miracle of our salvation, the wonders of the incarnation, the sacrifice of God's Lamb, ought to astound us, but let us not forget the power wrought in our own minds and hearts by the Holy Ghost to believe the gospel and trust in Jesus. Lost men are naturally helpless 
to believe the gospel under their own steam. And yet in each of our believing hearts, there has been a powerful work of the Holy Ghost to convert us. That work is far more powerful than God's rescue of Jonah from the sea. We all like to think of ourselves as sweet and innocent compared to the bloody, wicked men of Nineveh. But in reality, we were just as lost and helpless and hopeless to believe God's Word as they all were. Yet the Holy Ghost wrought in us all an astounding work of conversion. We must pray that God will work the same work in our lost friends and family members who have not yet believed and be faithful to proclaim the gospel to them all. Now, this Christmas Eve, Lord's Day, it seems good to rehearse the miracle of our Savior's incarnation. In Isaiah 7.14, dealing with a cantankerous and rebellious king, Ahaz, the prophet delivers to him the words of the Lord. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Now here is foretold the sign of the Lord, of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. That, of course, is impossible that it should take place. And yet, that is the sign. Well, that's a pretty good sign, isn't it? Except for the problem that people will question whether the virgin was really a virgin, and they will question a number of things, and things will get ugly, and there will be a lot of sneering and joking. But it is a sign, and it's a miraculous sign, and it's one of the most miraculous things that can be conceived of. You know, God parted the Red Sea, and we can imagine how that would be. He could use His mighty arm of salvation to do that. We can't do it, but He could. But how can He... How can he cause a virgin to conceive and bear a son? And much less this notion that he should be called Emmanuel, God with us. This virgin birth is one of the first of many impossible things, impossible acts by which God saves his loved ones. Keep it in mind, the impossibility of some of the things about the Incarnation. And that yet these things are necessary for the saving of us all. Necessary for the saving of us all. And not only the virgin birth, but God in the flesh, God with us. How can that be? If God created all things, how could He then, as it were, clothe Himself in His creature and step into His creation? You know, we all are supposed to believe in the transcendence of God, that He is outside of His creation, not that He doesn't act in His creation, but that He's separate and apart from it because He made it and He existed long before He created anything. He existed eternally, didn't He? Here is the proposition of two impossible things coupled together. A conception by a virgin woman of a child, of a son, and then the identification of that child as God in the flesh with us, living tangibly and physically in our midst by this child. How could this be? Of course, a little bit later in Isaiah, a more explicit reference is made to the deity 
of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then at the end of verse 7 it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now that's just a way of the Lord underlining that He's really serious about this. Take note of it. Mark it down. Because He will surely bring it to pass. All the promises of God are sure and certain, but He wants to make sure we understand that this particular promise is more sure and more certain, if that's possible, than all the sure and certain promises of God that He will give us a son and a child and that He will take the government upon His shoulder and His name will be all this long list of glorious attributes and names which God will bestow upon Him. Now, you know, you think about this promise. He's promising a real human child, a real human being, a son, a child, will be born, will be given to us. It will be from the hand of the Lord in a way that is peculiarly different from the way all children of the Lord's gifts to their parents and to their communities in a derivative sort of sense. But this is a child and a son that will be given by God to His people, a real human being like us, made like His brethren, flesh and blood, tangible, a tangible human being, but also this child will be the government at some point, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we love to call Jesus the Prince of Peace because we long for peace. At least the world claims that it longs for peace. But the question is, do they long for the peace of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, Deity incarnate in humanity, probably most of them would discover they don't long for that. But for believers, we can truly long for the Prince of Peace to be seen operating tangibly in this world. But notice this title, the Mighty God. So here it is again, you see, that God has promised that He will provide to the world a son and a child who has all these glorious characteristics which are unique as a combination and even taken separately amongst all the children of men. This is a child to be provided by God in a special way and not by natural generation. But He is the mighty God. So here is once again an assertion of something that's impossible that God should be manifest in the flesh that this Son should be seen to be God incarnate in our humanity. Looking at it from the point of view of a cynic or an unbeliever, this is all outrageous. It cannot be. It's totally outside the realm of possibility as you and I naturally conceive it. The virgin birth, God manifest with us in the flesh, in our presence, in our world, in the lives of real men and women, boys and girls. But isn't this what 
Paul the Apostle asserted of the Lord Jesus after he was crucified and rose and ascended to glory. Paul said in Colossians 2, In Him that is in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Of course, Paul is slapping at the Gnostics who think Jesus Christ only came in the Spirit and all the flesh was just to be discarded and downgraded and ill-considered because after all, everything that's physical is evil. That's what they thought. But God sent His Son to redeem all of His creation, including all that is physical and has been marred by sin. He will redo those things. He will recreate. He'll make a new creation, won't He? A one in which dwells righteousness so that the evil is to be shorn from the creation by this very human Son of God who is also God manifest in the flesh and in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Think about what an astounding statement that is. Most of the world will say, well, that can't be true either. And they'll just write it off, won't they? They'll just dismiss it. But you see in these things, these promises, promises of incredible and impossible circumstances. And then in Micah 5 at verse 2, we read that text that the Pharisees and the scribes quoted to King Herod when he wanted to know where Messiah should be born. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now notice the prosaic start, which is to predict the birthplace of Christ, Bethlehem, the city of David. You know, that's not impossible now. I mean, because everybody knows God knows the future and He can predict and foretell facts that in themselves are not miraculous. He had to be born somewhere. Plenty of children were born in Bethlehem. So it's not an impossible thing that He should be born in Bethlehem. So it's a prosaic start of this prophecy, of His birthplace, but it's coupled with another reference that Jesus is God. Notice it says that His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That means that the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, was not a created being. He is God of very God. And then He will be born in Bethlehem in the body of a man incarnate in our human flesh. He's eternal and His coming to be incarnate as a man was eternally planned. Notice His going forth is from old, from everlasting. This tells us something about how the incarnation of Christ is completely intertwined, understood, foreknown, and determined right at the creation of the whole world. Not only that, at the conception of the creation of the whole world by our Almighty God. That it was always His plan that the second person of the Godhead should be manifest and incarnate in human flesh. It comes at a particular time in history at Bethlehem, about two millennia ago. The purpose of it and the foreknowing of it and the plan of it and the determination that it would happen are from everlasting. 
Now this sort of knocks in the head the heresy which is going about in the churches that God didn't really know what was going to happen until Adam sinned. And then once Adam sinned, God had to come up with a plan. And that plan was the incarnation and the sacrifice of Jesus. And they actually claim that comes out of Genesis 3 because they don't know how to read the Scripture or understand any of it because I suppose the Spirit hadn't revealed it to them, most likely because they're lost in their sin. But here is a statement that this was not a last-minute idea by God, but that it was determined from everlasting. And therefore, regarding the Lord Jesus, this is another statement of His divinity, of His deity. Now, in order to save sinners, God had to produce a perfect offering to be a sacrifice in our place and for our crime. No lamb could do, as Hebrews has explained to us. And we could not do. No perfect man could arise of his own steam or even with the power of God and sacrifice himself. It would never be sufficient, would it, to save the Lord's people. It would have to be deity clothed in our flesh. Our kinsman redeemer of God Himself a perfect sacrifice to take our place in God's judgment to sin to die for us. And so this is why the incarnation of God manifest in the flesh in Jesus Christ is so important. Without that, there would be no redemption. There would be no salvation because there would be no sacrifice that could take away sin or satisfy God's judgment upon His people. And we've mentioned already that not only is the incarnation one of the impossible miracles required for the saving of us all, but also that God could impute the sins of poor sinners that He loves unto His precious Son, God manifest in the flesh, that He could lay them on Him and punish Him in our place so that we could be justified and declared to be without fault at all. So Christ had to be God in the flesh, miraculously born of a virgin, or else we could never be saved and our sins never taken away. The inconceivable process of God's salvation, only God Himself could devise it and only God could pull it off. Imagine some people sitting around somewhere, some holy people, saying, you know, I think the best way for God to save us is to lay the blame on Himself in human form and punish Himself in our place. Never could conceive of that at all, could we? It would never cross our minds. And if it had crossed our minds, it would be the utmost impudence and blasphemy for us to propose it without God's proposing it first. In other words, our salvation is impossible. It's just impossible. There's no way that our sins can ever be taken away. You see, this is what puts salvation through Christ and His sacrifice at a far higher plane than the rescue of Jonah by the great fish. Because great fish exist. They're already possible. And it's conceivable that a great fish could swallow a person who's in the process of drowning. But it's not completely impossible. It's not completely out of the realm of possibility 
But with God, all things are possible. And therefore, it is possible that God should incarnate the Son as a person, as a human being, to come into this world and do it by means of a virgin. And He should then lay down His life as the only perfect Lamb. And so you see that all along the way, at key points, God worked miracles that are not even conceivable by us. Not even conceivable. In no way could they possibly take place. Now, you know, lost men suppose that they can save themselves by things they can conceive of doing. Reasonable things. Hard, maybe. But surely things that ought to be possible for the best of us. (laughs) So-called. And of course, this is the error of Pelagianism that while of course we can keep the law, we just need a little grace to help us, maybe. But If we can't keep the law, then it's totally unfair for God to require us to keep the law. So it can't be that. Surely we must be able to bootstrap ourselves to doing what we can do. And so lost men suppose they can be saved by things that they can do. That's why every false religion believes in good works. Because, I mean, we can all do some good works, can't we? Of course, we can't do any good works in our lost condition because all of our so-called good works are stained by all of our bad motives and selfish motives and presumptuousness before a holy God. And all our good works, as Isaiah told us, are like filthy rags before God. But you see, men propose what they conceive of as doable things for their salvation, be it good works, partaking in sacraments, being baptized, for example, going to the Mass, partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus in the form of bread and wine, obeying rituals. And you see that all of these methods, good thoughts even, kind thoughts, studying the works of the Buddha to reach complacency and kindness. and well, All of these things are all things that we can do, or at least we think we can. And that's why salvation can't be of those things because salvation for us is impossible. It's impossible. There is no thing we can do to save ourselves. And this is why faith has to be a gift. Otherwise, it would be that one little tiny thing that we contributed to all of our own steam in order to lay hold of the salvation that God had wrought. You see, all our conceptions involve doable acts, but God, look at God's doable acts that He lays on us for salvation. Just obey the whole law. Don't break a single commandment. Obey it perfectly. But then that's not doable either. So see, God's whole point is to fence us about with the undoableness, impossibility of salvation so that we will only be able to flee to Him and cry out for mercy. But even that's undoable if we can't believe His promises. So He gives us the faith to believe. This helps us to grasp the true nature of saving faith because the impossible nature of our salvation makes 
it impossible for rebellious lost sinners to believe it. Look at all these truths about Christ that are impossible for us to believe or conceive of. There's no way they could have happened, is there? And yet that's what we're called on to believe. Well, that's part of why lost, wicked men can't believe the Gospel. They can't believe that God would lay their sins on His own dear Son, God manifest in the flesh, and punish Him in our place. That's just completely unbelievable, as is all the rest of it, including the incarnation, the virgin birth, God being manifest in the flesh to take away our sins. You see, as long as Jesus is seen as a moral man, a spiritual teacher who urges moral duties that men can do, then Jesus is acceptable to the world as long as that's all He is. But you make Him the God of all creation, the One who made everything, and now who is clothed in the flesh of His creatures whom He made and lives a perfect life and then dies in their place and takes their sins upon Himself that's an impossibility. And not only that, it's flat out insulting to the minds and hearts of lost people. How dare God treat them as if they're that guilty and that vile and that helpless that they need a sacrifice that big and that glorious? But it's the impossibility of all that requires the miraculous gift of faith to receive it and to trust in Christ. That is what makes the Christmas story so beautiful. God is working the completely impossible presentation of His Lamb, and those who are a part of it are given faith to believe it. Here is the contrast that when the Lord Jesus is finally born, notice the people around who believe the promises as far as they're revealed to them. Believe them and trust in them and proceed and go forward to obey what the Lord tells them to do during the birth of Christ. You remember in Matthew 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as His mother Mary was a spouse of Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. Think about this. Here is an upright Jewish man who in their society would be unthinkable to marry a woman who was not a virgin, especially she was young and had presented herself to be pure and chaste. And now here he finds she's pregnant and he knows he's not the father. And so he thinks about these things. He had the option to divorce her or to just tell her to go home to her father, and that'd be the end of it. He could do that. That was what the law allowed, and that's what he wanted to do, and not make a big public fuss of it, just call the whole thing off. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now this was really unfair by the angel to remind Joseph that he was a son of David because you see it was something that perhaps most people wouldn't want to remember anymore because Joseph was the end of a long broken down heritage of royalty. 
David was his forebear, and of course there was a glorious reign there. But by the time Nebuchadnezzar came and hauled everybody off into captivity because of their sin and their wickedness and their shedding of innocent blood, why he said that the line that Joseph came through, that never would a king of Israel come through that particular line. And now here he is reminding, the angels reminding Joseph of the fact that he is a son of David. And he says, fear not. And no doubt that evokes in Joseph's mind this idea that David was a brave-hearted man. He was the king of the whole nation. And now I'm being called to not fear because I'm a son of David. But the angel tells him that that which is conceived in Mary your wife is conceived in her by the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. These are the impossible things that nobody can believe without the work of the Holy Ghost. And yet Joseph believes them. The Lord has worked in his heart. He believes these incredible, impossible things. And therefore, he obeys the angel of the Lord. He believes the word that God gives to him through that angel, doesn't he? He believes that his wife has conceived by the Holy Ghost. And he believes that she will bring forth a son. And he's told what to name that son Jesus because he, that is Jesus, will save his people from their sins. And maybe Joseph couldn't miss the implication that the word in Hebrew for Jesus is Jehovah saves. But the angel identifies the little baby as being the one that saves, which is an indication of the deity of the Lord Jesus, that He is Jehovah manifested in the flesh as a little babe. And then it says, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So here is the fulfillment, not only of the virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus, but also of His deity, that He will be God living among His people in the form of the Lord Jesus. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So you see that the faith of Joseph and the belief of Joseph in the words of the Lord by the angel resulted in his obedience to the command and in his therefore being the stepfather, the adopted father, if you will, of the Savior and his protector during his youth see that no matter how impossible these acts are in God's saving of His people, nevertheless, along the way, He imparts to people the faith to believe and to trust in the incredible, in the unbelievable. And then in Luke chapter 1, of course, we have the confrontation of Mary by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel comes to Mary and she's already espoused to Joseph but they have not come together. And the angel said unto her, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, 
she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So here the angel is basically outlining and expanding upon what the Old Testament prophets had promised, the impossible thing that God should be manifest in the flesh, They should be born of a virgin, come into this world to save His people. Save His people from what? From their sin. The world wants a Savior that will save us from other people's sin. Because ours is all trivial and harmless in the scheme of things. And so we gnash against the sin of others that's doing the real harm But notice the promise is that Jesus would save His people from their sin, rescue them from their unrighteousness. He would bring forgiveness for the sin of His people whom He loves. And so Mary believes the Word of the Lord presented to her by this angel. He also informs her about her cousin Elizabeth who's conceived the son in her old age. With God, nothing shall be impossible, the angel tells Mary. And Mary believed, and she trusted, and she went forward, and she bore the Lord Jesus. And you remember when she went to confront Elizabeth, to visit Elizabeth, why Elizabeth felt the babe, John the Baptist, leap in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy, and blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. So here's another person who believes God's Word that's disclosed to her and rejoices in it and encourages Mary. So all these things that are impossible, inconceivable, yet When it comes time for them to be fulfilled, the Lord provides people that He causes to believe the incredible and the impossible so that He might accomplish His purposes. And then, of course, we read this morning Luke 2 where Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to be registered with the Roman tyrants. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. The incarnation is accomplished, just as the Old Testament said it would be, and it's accomplished through these what appear to be normal everyday means, and yet, if you knew the whole story, you realize how impossible it was, and yet there it happened. And then it's disclosed to the shepherds abiding 
in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now they understood that means the Messiah, the promised Redeemer of Old Testament times. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Now think about that. It's a pretty lowly sign, isn't it? That means that this Savior was not going to be born in a king's palace to parents of wealthy means. It's going to be very humble, very small, very humble, very very helpless, very powerless. That's the sign. Look for that and you'll know you've found the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. So the angels declare the salvation which God has brought to this point where the Savior has been born, the Lord of glory. And the angels have told these men what the sign is whereby they can identify this young infant for themselves. And so they go look for him. They go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has come to pass which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they find Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. So here you see that when the Lord Jesus is born, the Lord prepares the hearts of these shepherds to believe the Word of God which is revealed to them about this holy child and about His being a Savior for His people and are given a lowly sign and they pursue it and they see it and they observe it and then they testify to it to the people that are around them. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. They believed what they had been told. So we started out talking about all the unbelievable things that were involved in the incarnation of Christ. And then we conclude with a recitation of all the people whom the Lord prepared their hearts to believe the fulfillment of the unbelievable and impossible things that God ordained to bring about our salvation in the presentation of His dear Son in our human flesh to be made a sacrifice, to lay down His life, to save us from our sin. You see, it was all a miracle what the Lord did to pull off these impossible events. And it was a miracle to convict and convince the people involved to believe the impossible events. And then it's a miracle that we believe it, that we believe all of this about Christ, that we believe His gospel. This should fill us with great joy and singing as we celebrate the Lord's table because there we celebrate the act that this incarnate Son of God 
that was impossible carried out on the cross to save us from our sin. And it is a miracle from start to finish. You see, there's nothing in any of this that's possible for us to do, including to trust in the Lord without the power and working of the Holy Ghost in our hearts. And it reminded me of a hymn that we didn't sing this year, but one of my favorite Christmas carols, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. And so it has been for all the Lord's people who've been brought to Christ, who've called upon the name of the Lord, who've been caused to believe all the wonderful things, all the impossible things, all the glorious things about our Redeemer, about His salvation, about His taking away our sin. In all of us, there is a miracle seed. There is a miracle gift given to us. Not only the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice and our salvation, but faith to believe and to call upon God and He will hear us and He will save us according to His promise. And let's give thanks for the Lord's table now and for how it pictures uh, the beauties and the perfections and the tragedy of the Lord Jesus dying for us to take away our sin, to have our sins laid upon Him, to be made sin for us, He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Well, let's give thanks for the bread first that pictures His body was born under these circumstances which we've discussed and it was torn and shredded on Calvary's tree that we might go free. Praise God. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in your dear Son and in the Incarnation and that you clothed Him with our humanity to make Him our kinsman redeemer and our elder brother and that you did it for the purpose that He might be an offering and a sacrifice for our sin that He might be your Lamb that was slain and that He might take away our sins by dying on the cruel tree in our place. And He did so, but He left us this memorial to remember Him by so that we might have our gaze fixed upon that body which is our whole hope and salvation and glory and rejoicing. And we thank You that He left it for us to remember Him by. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's sing in our big blue hymn book 
number 85, number 85, silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight, glories stream from heaven afar, heavenly hosts sing alleluia, Christ the Savior is born, Christ the Savior is born, number 85.